We acknowledge that Western University is located on the traditional lands of the Anishinaabek, Haudenosaunee, Benapewuk, and Attawandaran peoples on lands connected with the London Township and Sombra Treaties of 1796 and the Dish with One Soon Covenant Wampum. This land continues to be home to diverse Indigenous people, like First Nations, Métis, and Inuit, whom we recognize as contemporary stewards of the land and vital contributors of our society. Hello and welcome to GradCast, the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students at Western University. I'm your host, Sarah Klatman. And I'm your co-host, Yusuf. And today we have Mo Sharifi, uh, who is the Racial Equity Commissioner at SOGS. So welcome to our show, uh, Mo. And this was the first time also that we had the land acknowledgement after having a discussion with you. So tell us more about the land acknowledgement and its importance, Mo. Hi, thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here and appreciate uh, the opportunity. Uh, yes, it's very important to have the land, land acknowledgement uh, and it's not just a symbolic thing at the beginning of every ceremony or every event, uh, but it's more like an acknowledgement of the heritage and the legacy of the land that we are occupying. And it's not just about naming a land or its, its history, it's, it's about acknowledging our responsibility to this legacy of indigenous peoples and also uh, other people like uh, black peoples, Jewish people and racialized minorities who were part and parcel of creating this society and contributing to this, uh, to what we have now as a civilization that we have and acknowledging our responsibility to educate ourselves and to, to continue to work towards uh, a society that treats everyone fairly yeah. and gives them credit for that, yeah. So I was just wondering, so Mo, what sorts of experiences led you to pursue or become the Racial Equity Commissioner and advocate for voices of marginalized people in our community? What inspired you to, to be where you are right now? Yeah, this is, uh, part of this question is personal for me. Part of it is beyond my personal uh, passions. I've always been passionate about uh, racial justice and beyond that social justice. And, uh, but then as a graduate student, you have priorities. You always, you are always uh, advised to pick your battles, quote unquote. So it was always something that I, that was a dilemma for me. And when this role was created in August, 2019, I had to face the question like, do I just keep to myself and focus on my dissertation and move on? Or do I wanna be actively participating and fighting for the change that I've been waiting for? So my answer was that maybe I have to take part. Maybe I have to take the initiative. Maybe I wanna be part of the change that, I, that I'm so eagerly waiting for. So this was the beginning of this journey. And I knew that by starting this, I cannot create change on my own. I, can, I cannot change, create change overnight. And the path of like, activism is always a very fine balance between com uh, compromise and idealism. And it's really, really hard to define this balance and to create it. And you're not always successful in doing that, but I took it on myself and uh, I'm happy to have done so, yeah. That's terrific, wow. So um, 
you are the, the equity commissioner and, and my understanding is under your purview, you also have inclusion and diversity. What do those concepts mean to you? Because they're so nebulous, but in practice, they're so important. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, uh, for me, uh, my role uh, solely focuses on uh, racial equity and inclusivity. So we do have an equity uh, committee at SOGS, which is not directly focusing on this. This came out of a need, and this was with the realization that this was long, long overdue. So this came out of a need to address racial equity and anti-racism on campus. Uh, the one thing with EDI, I want to start with something controversial that is oftentimes a criticism about EDI initiatives uh, in institutions and in the government. EDI uh, a lot of times has been criticized as being too broad and being too general and taking away from the focus on anti-black racism, anti-indigenous racism and making and having a very wide brush for which doesn't really address the specific finesses and specific subtleties of these problems. So to me, EDI is a good tool, which has to be defined clearly, which has to be like, uh, which has to be crystallized in practice, policies and everyday processes of institutions. It has to be really clear, clearly defined to create the equity and inclusion that we really aspire to. So, if I tell you, if I tell you an example, that may become like a little more clear for, for our just, audience. Just a small question. Uh, you mean what does EDI stand for? I think I missed something. Oh, EDI, equity, diversity, and inclusion. Perfect. Thank you very Oftentimes, much. Oftentimes, yeah. yeah, the broad name. Yes, the broad name for initiatives under government and institutions. Yeah. So, uh, as an example, for example, when there was a mandate for academia to to take into account gender equity in their departments and in their hiring processes. This was, I don't exactly remember what decade this was, but this was not far, far long ago. Uh, this was a broad mandate, right? And then when you listen to uh, racial equity activists, their criticism is that because it was so broad and it was like only thinking about diversity in terms of gender and not thinking about the other dimensions, we ended up with hiring a specific group of women as faculty. So we ended up with basically more white middle-class cisgender women as faculty. But so that was, that was part of the solution, but that was definitely not the solution to diversity. So that speaks to how EDI should be clearly defined because like then the question of intersectionality comes into, into place and part of the bias against racialized women, which was a big part of the obstacle in the way of inclusion and diversity was not addressed. So EDI for me needs to be clearly defined and it has to have a, an intersectional lens to do justice. That, that's really fascinating. I think that's also very important. Uh, just quickly, I mean, uh, what do you think would be an effective way to have a more precise definition should we maybe opt for an open and frank conversation engage with communities in a way that is able to scrutinize without thinking of you know being you know, worried of what others might say if you have some objections or something like that because you're right it is controversial and sensitive but i think we can have a respectful meaningful conversation that actually makes the situation a lot clearer for all of us what do you think um 
Yeah, it is, it is complicated and I'm not like uh, an expert in policies, you know, for sure. But what comes to my mind is, like I said, considering intersectionality as a lens through which we can work uh, to achieve equity, diversity and inclusion. So to give a little, a very brief like definition of intersectionality, it was a term defined by and created by Kimberly Crenshaw, a scholar, uh, that emphasizes how different, uh, how different discriminations and different disadvantages based on different factors like gender, race, class, immigration status, et cetera, et cetera, they can be combined and they can overlap in everyday lives of marginalized people. And their combined effect is actually much worse than the effect of one or the other. And in advocacy work, Oftentimes people fall through the cracks because of that, because traditionally what, how we advocate for, pe for people is categorized, it's segregated. So like we advocate for gender equity separately from racial equity, separate from accessibility, et cetera, et cetera. So oftentimes it has happened that like someone who is, for example, Muslim identifies as a woman and is also racialized has multiple oppressions and multiple uh, obstacles in their lives. And oftentimes they don't know who to turn to if they see an injustice and they've been left out and left behind. So if we take that into account, a lot of times we can come up with like clearer instructions to move towards those goals, yeah. Mm -hmm. So as the commissioner, which is an amazing role and new and exciting and congratulations, um, what, uh, what kind of work are you doing? And, and are there projects that you've done that you're really proud of? Uh, yeah, well, it's hard to say if I'm proud, like if I'm proud of those or not, it totally depends on the, on the results that I get and what I see, what kind of feedback I get from my constituency because those are not achievements if I cannot see the effect in everyday lives of, uh, of my constituency. So, because the ultimate goal for me is to improve the quality of life and student experience on campus for racialized graduate students at Western and to fight racism and to create a more inclusive environment for them. We did, uh, well, I did a few things which was not possible without uh, connecting with amazing people on campus. And I'm, that's what I'm grateful for, that I've met so many amazing people through this work and I've been made aware of their existence, their hard work and their activism. And we've, we've done a few things uh, which, I can, which I can refer to a few. For example, uh, the anti-racism working group was, I think, I guess my major focus in the, since January till now, which, which took a lot of time, a lot of effort, a lot of, uh, and it, it was hard work because there was 20 of us we had to come to consensus for every single move. Wow. Uh, <laughs> moving forward. And we- That's yes. a quite a committee. Yes, that was hard. And we had a deadline. We started like in January, our deadline to create a report and recommendations for Western was in April, mm. the latest. Wow. So, uh, we were between a, between a rock and a hard uh, place, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Mo, I, I actually had a question for you on, on this thing. And 
I mean, so you've been involved for a few months for the for the Western's official workshop on anti-racism run by uh, President Alan Shepard. And I guess I wanted to know what your experiences were when you were engaged in these listening sessions, for example, what you learned from them and how people collectively came up with proposals to fight racism. Um, could you share more about uh, your experiences? Yeah, for sure. I mean, as much as I can uh, remember in the moment. Sure, yeah. This was a hard decision to make, first of all, because we started our work against a backdrop of uh, skepticism, a backdrop of, well, this was the first time this was happening in, on such a scale at Western. So there was so much skepticism, there was so much criticism already. And that, that would set, that sets you back upfront, like, because, because I would, I would hear people say right at the beginning, like two weeks into my work, I would hear people, people who are well-intentioned, don't get me wrong, they were not like <laughs> racist people or anything, but people who are well-intentioned, but were skeptical of it and would, would say, this is not going to go anywhere. Mm. Why should, should we care about it? How, how, how come, how, why would they be so skeptical in terms of this will not go anywhere? What were the main obstacles for this? You know, one thing was that this was very long overdue for Western. So when you have a history of authorities, I'm not talking just about Western, but like authorities in all levels, ignoring crucial problems like racism, and just hearing, and it's not the first time we have a report on racism or racial equity, right? So people, there is a collective fatigue and a collective kind of uh, skepticism regarding any movement, any initiative that the authorities start, because one, one common thing that I would hear was that, is this gonna end up on another shelf collecting dust? Mm. And I was like, no. I'm, I'm here, if I'm here to, to do this work, I'm gonna make sure this work continues. So this was a very heavy like start for us. And then with everyone from different backgrounds, different, different perspectives, we had like admin level people, we had faculty, undergraduate student leaders uh, from all backgrounds, we had graduate students, we had staff and everyone. And then we all had to come together with one vision and with one mission, right? Uh, all on the same page and then go to people and ask them and convince them to trust us to come forward to talk to us confidentially and then collect all of that data and put it together and then go about creating analyzing that and creating recommendations and bring out the themes and also be careful about elevating and honoring and validating those voices because the most important thing is to be accountable to stories because as soon as you hear stories you become responsible for them what do you what are you going to do that's the most common question when you hear people they say what are you going to do next what is it going to come out of it because a lot of people they were already tired of talking and not seeing any action and i'm quoting like people generally yeah. several people they're like mm -hmm. what's going to happen next yeah Sarah, did you have a question? Well, I was just gonna comment, I guess, that uh, it's, it, congratulations, firstly, it's done. I got it in my email today. It's gorgeous and I can't wait to read it. Um, but also, and I'm, I don't know how intentional this was, you really um, kind of 
dovetailed into a really important moment in the zeitgeist about anti-racism and sort of mobilization at not only an individual but a structural level. Um, how did that play into the experience with, with writing this report and the work that you're doing? I guess this was a coincidence or, <laughs> but like, it was also like kind of, I don't know, it, it was as if it was a calling for me when I got into this role. And then I do remember, okay, I'm from the English department. So uh, what happened, I, I have to acknowledge that what started this move or this initiative was an incident in my department. A student spoke up against uh, the behavior, racially insensitive behavior of a prof. Mm -hmm. And then she got so much hatred online, hate mail and racial, uh, racial insults, et cetera, et cetera. And that initiate started all of this. Mm. So this was also, this was also, this made it more important to me too. I mean, not that it was, it was important already, but mm. it made it more personal for me that my department has such a problem and wish, and someone speaks up, when someone speaks up, they already make a sacrifice because as soon as you start activism, as soon as you start speaking up, you're exposing yourself. To the hostility that is already there especially online so i was i talked to that person and uh, i have a lot of respect for her for her courage and then i decided this is time for it at the same time around the same time it was everything happened at the same time i was going i went to a, a conference it's called a converse action instead of conversation converse action uh it's about anti-racism in academia canada-wide mm. so Many scholars and activists came to Waterloo, uh, University of Waterloo and Renison College. They hosted that conference. And it was really centered about anti-racism, racial equity and inclusion, and how to make actionable plans for change uh, and how to be on the same page and not reinvent the wheel and to learn from each other's experiences, etc. I wrote a full report about that. It's it's interesting that like at the end of that report, I had some recommendations for Western. One of them was to create a task force uh, to address racism. I was really glad when President Shepard started this and I was like, okay, I don't know if he saw my report or not, but well, <laughs> this was timely. Mm -hmm. So I was glad that this happened and I could join this initiative. I think, I think this is a turning point for Western. It is, and um, I mean, of course, this is just the beginning of the a really important work that needs to be continuous. Now, I'm just thinking that the timing is also interesting in the sense that there's an uprising given George Floyd's killing. And uh, there's an uproar and people are a lot more active and, and engaged, especially on this issue. And it's in this time that the report is in. Um, so I, I was also wondering that you must have had many engagements recently in the past few weeks uh, what have those um, sessions been with you uh, for you while speaking with other students, and especially in these times? And what have you learned? Oh, well, this was this has been a tough, a tough few weeks for for everyone. I think with the pandemic and everything kind of piled up. Like we had different layers of crisis, and it all like kind of played off of each other. Uh, because with the start of the pandemic, we kept seeing that, I kept hearing and from people, 
from uh, scholars that the pandemic has highlighted the injustices already. This was before George Floyd's uh, death. Yeah, so the pandemic was already highlighting the differences and the injustices in our society here in Canada, in North America, more generally speaking, we knew from people talking, from stories, from collective, like local uh, surveys and people writing about it, that the racialized uh, groups, they were affected much worse than other people. But by the way, the Canadian government was not collecting race-based data. They only talked about age factor and some other factors, but not race-based data. It wasn't until recently that the, the government of Ontario decided to collect race-based data. This was after the Black Lives Matter movement after George Floyd's death. So we already, I was already aware of these and like talking to people, international students, racialized uh, graduate students and others. I knew their struggles through the quarantine and uh, through the pandemic. And then George Floyd's uh, death happened, which was shocking. This was, this was like beyond anything we could have imagined because this was like 2020 at its worst. And uh, this meant a lot, this affected people. This affected our black uh, population, this affected uh, racialized population. And I saw things happen. People started like collectively taking on activism, which was a good thing. I started seeing white uh, individuals becoming more and more vocal and becoming more conscious of their role as allies. So I saw a lot of different things. And then at SOGS, we started doing a few things like I started a virtual support group for international and racialized groups, uh, graduate students. Uh, we're starting an advocacy speaker series with the other four commissioners and me. We're gonna have one speaker speak to address the graduate student community every month. So. The first one is coming up tomorrow with Councillor Kayabaga. Uh, she's from Ward, Ward uh, 13, London, Ontario. She's awesome, she's an activist. And we're gonna continue that with different focuses, but with an intersectional lens. That's terrific, wow. Yeah, I was gonna ask how you thought that the Black Lives Matter movement relates to your work, but it's so clear that it's also sort of interwoven. And you mentioned increasing um, engagement by white folks. And uh, there's a fair number of those at Western, myself included. Um, what can we do as people who just are systemically more privileged um, to support uh, our community members of color and especially uh, indigenous and black community members who are facing such extreme racism at this time? Yes, that's a very good question. That's something I've been also thinking about because also I'm not a black person, but I'm a racialized person. So I do have a, this double role or this double life sometimes. Like I can see myself as an ally. I can see myself as someone who's directly who has been directly affected by racism. So I've been thinking about this. Um, I'm thinking about, uh, there was a speech by Kimberly Crenshaw about what kind of an ally you wanna be. And uh, allyship I think definitely starts with self-reflection and self-education and self-interrogation. Thinking about our privileges, thinking about our biases, thinking about our role in society because Nowadays, it, we, we are in a period and in an era that silence is not an option. Silence could mean complicity. So if you know that you are privileged and if you know of injustices in the society, 
And if you're quiet about it, it's not okay. But this doesn't mean that everyone should feel the pressure to say something. But the, uh, the, comparative, the, the imperative for us is to, to acknowledge and to bear witness to the injustices in the, in the society around us. To stand in solidarity, stand with black individuals, black peoples, to stand in solidarity with them and uh, to uplift and to elevate their voices. Not speak for them, but to, but to amplify their voices. Uh, there's also the question of white fragility that is on it in itself. <laughs> you, can, you can talk for hours about it. Uh, but not to be sensitive about criticism, not to, be, not to take things personally. If, some, if a racialized person, if a black person talks about racism and talks about how white privilege uh, has been damaging different groups, not to take it personally, but also reflect on it and to understand it. And there's also other, other things uh, like not to dismiss the experiences of black and racialized uh, individuals, not to, uh, I call it intentional fallacy, not to say, oh, I didn't mean it. I'm sorry you felt like that. This is not good. These are like simple, mm -hmm. small things that affect people on a daily basis, microaggressions. Microaggressions are not so micro. Mm -hmm. Their effect on us is macro. They're, it's their major. Micro, I, know, I know some people compared microaggressions to like mosquito bites. They're beyond that. Microaggressions are like bullets that injure you and it takes ages to heal from. So it's good to educate oneself. Right, actually, incidentally, we have someone coming in tomorrow whose research is on microaggressions and how those have a cumulative effect that is severely harmful for people who are going through that on a daily basis. So stay tuned for that as well. But no, that's some really interesting points that you raised. Um, sometimes I see people who, who want to do something, they want to be an ally, they want to express in some ways, and sometimes they begin by taking small steps, for example, changing their display picture in solidarity. But of course, sometimes they, they get shamed as well. And uh, that's also a bit of a problem. Instead of saying, you know, this is useless, just say, oh, this is great. Here's something else that you can also do. Uh, you know, go to, the, to these links, the donation links as well. And I think that kind of approach is a bit more helpful. You're running short um, of time, actually, as well. Any final thoughts, Mel? No, thank you so much uh, for this. Thanks for the opportunity. I really appreciate this. Uh, we, need to, we need to facilitate conversations about race, racial equity, anti-racism. We, we shouldn't let this moment pass like it had this happened in the, in, the, in the past, in history. We should keep going. The work is, has to be consistent and change comes gradually. Uh, like one scholar writes in uh, her articles, she says, change comes with a sweeping cultural transformation uh, in all levels. We can't, uh, we can't fight racism on only like one, on individual case basis. It needs a cultural transformation. And we are all part of it. Whether we do take action or we are responding to the crisis with inaction, everything we do or we don't do matters at this moment in, in history. So we have to be part of it. And I think we have to be grateful to be able to be part of a big change. Mm -hmm. so Absolutely. All right. So we're just about out of time. Thank you most so much for coming on. It's been a wonderful discussion. You really shared some terrific things. Um, if anybody wants to learn more about your work, uh, is there a website that they can go to or an email or a, a social media handle that you want to share? Yes, absolutely. Uh, 
uh, Western Stogs has uh, its Facebook page that usually we publicize events through. Uh, they also, we also have our Twitter handle that they can find. Uh, I can share the links for. We also created a Discord channel for Stogs members with different uh, various channels under that. For example, I have a racial equity channel under for my constituency. Other people have their own. And it's like a virtual grad club space for everyone to meet and to socialize. It's important to take care of ourselves and to connect and uh, to socialize. So, hey, yeah. well, I also want to just thank you as well for taking up the time. I know it's such a busy time as well with so many things happening, and all of us we really appreciate you uh, for for you to come on our show and express yourselves. It's really important to us. Thank you very much. Thank you. So much. Thank you. All right. Well, this has been Gradcast, the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students at Western University. I've been your host, Sarah, and my co-host was Yusuf, and we've been speaking with Mo Sharifi. This episode was produced by Greg Robinson. If you'd like to be involved with the show or get in contact with us, email us at gradcastradio at gmail.com. You can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at Gradcast Radio. To listen to us, we're on the radio at CHRW 94.9 FM. You can also find all of our episodes on our website at gradcast.ca or on podcast apps like Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Alternatively, select podcasts have been uploaded to YouTube at Gradcast Radio. Thank you for listening and have a great night.